Welcome to Soundprints Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Soundprints is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Soundprints for the week of March 27, 2022. Tri-State Library users are selling 32-gigabyte flash drives and SD cards for $15 each to raise money for the organization. To order, call the KCB office at 502-895-4598. You can pick up flash drives or SD cards at GLCB Hybrid Events in April, or we can mail them to you. Add $3 for shipping. The South Central Kentucky Council of the Blind has several events scheduled in the next two weeks. First, everyone is invited to its social hour on Wednesday, March 30, from 2 to 3 p.m. Central, 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern. There isn't a speaker for that day, just good conversation and information. Then, on April 6, you're invited to learn about the Wayband from WearWorks. Wayband is a wearable wristband that can help a blind or visually impaired person navigate the environment through the use of vibrations. On Sunday, April 3, SCKCB will hold an in-person and Zoom chapter meeting at the Redeemer Church, 3533 Dahlia Way in Bowling Green. Doors open at 1.30 Central Time. Share a meal at 2. The hybrid business meeting will follow on Zoom and in person. The Zoom number for both of the social hours and the business meeting is 669-900-6833 and the code is 763-689-4411. The passcode, should you need it, is 25852. For more information about SCKCB, call Teresa Eskew, Vice President at 270-776-6971. The Spring Quarterly Meeting of the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind is on Saturday, April 2, at United Crescent Hill Ministries, 150 South State Street in Louisville, and on the KCB Zoom line at 669-900-6833. The code is 862-9889-6972. Doors open at UCHM at 1. During the first hour, you can mingle with friends, get help with Braille, iPhone, iPad, and more. The program and meeting begins in person and on Zoom at 2. Speakers will include Steve Weiser, a popular, well-known presenter on the history of Louisville, and Janet Dickelman, ACB Convention Coordinator. We will also be electing four directors to the GLCB board who will serve for the next two years. In-person attendees will enjoy a delicious home-cooked dinner at 4, followed by a bargain table and more socializing with friends. Make return rides by 6 p.m. Dinner is $6 per person. Sign up by calling 502-895-4598. ACB Families will hold its April business meeting on Sunday, April 3 at 9 p.m. Eastern by Zoom. Join from any computer, cell phone, or landline by dialing 669-900-6833 and entering code 862-9889-6972. ACB Lions invites blind and visually impaired lions from across the country to its meeting on Thursday, April 7 at 8.30 Eastern Time. The Zoom number is 669-900-6833 and the code is 842-3825-0700. 
The following information comes from the Braille Book Review published in January-February of 2022. From In Brief, we find new issues of FLQ available online. NLS continues to publish foreign language quarterly, FLQ, which lists popular foreign language books recently added to the NLS collection and available through the network of cooperating libraries. The second issue, released in October and linked from www.loc.gov slash nls slash flq, highlights Spanish language books for Hispanic Heritage Month, including the first new Spanish language Braille books to be posted to BARD since 2014. Many of these books come to NLS from other countries via the Marrakesh Treaty, but patrons will also find books produced by NLS and converted from cassette tapes. All books listed in FLQ are available for immediate download from BARD. The new publication also provides directions on how to use new BARD features, such as searching for materials in specific languages. NLS Foreign Language Selection Strategies Curious how NLS selects foreign language books? The Accessible Books Consortium, ABC, website recently published an article by NLS foreign language librarian Kelsey Corlett Rivera describing her strategies for identifying foreign language titles NLS patrons may want including use of U.S. Census data. The article is available at www.accessiblebooksconsortium.org slash news slash en slash 2021 slash news dot ACB commends CBS on expanded description, published on March 24, 2022. The American Council of the Blind congratulates the CBS television network for significantly increasing the amount of programming it makes available on CBS with audio description, AD. In keeping with its commitment, to accessibility, CBS recently added AD to several of its primetime series, Bull, Ghosts, SWAT, Good Sam, Magnum PI, Undercover Boss, and more. With these additions, CBS now offers AD with nearly all of its regularly scheduled scripted primetime programs. CBS has consistently exceeded the government-mandated hourly requirement for AD programming over the past 20 years. With these expanded AD offerings, it has once again shown its leadership in the provision of accessible media to blind and low-vision consumers. Quote, as co-chair of the Audio Description Project and an avid consumer of audio description, I am thrilled that CBS is furthering its already robust commitment 
to quality audio description. Paramount Global has always been a leader in audio description, and it continues to show others that there is a need for even more audio description programming. I look forward to watching more of Paramount Global's programming, said Carl Richardson, ACB's audio description project co-chair. Quote, CBS is proud to provide audio description to audiences of nearly our entire primetime lineup and will continue to work to expand its important access for fans of our shows. It reflects many of Paramount Global's core values, including inclusivity, collaboration, determination, agility, and adaptability. We thank the American Council of the Blind for their continued commitment and advocacy, said Mark Turitz, T-U-R-I-T-S, Vice President, Captioning and Audio Description at Paramount Global. ACB sincerely hopes that other broadcasters and entertainment service providers will follow their lead and join Paramount Global in providing increased accessible content to our community. For more information about accessible programming with audio description, please visit ACB's Audio Description Project website at https colon slash slash adp dot acb dot org. The American Council of the Blind is a leading national member-driven organization committed to fostering voice, choice, and community for people who are blind and visually impaired. Learn more at www.acb.org. From the March 21 issue of Dots and Dashes, published by the American Council of the Blind, comes the following. ACB applauds DOJ's guidance on web access in the ADA. The Department of Justice has published guidance on web accessibility and the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA. It explains how state and local governments, entities covered by ADA Title II, and businesses open to the public, entities covered by ADA Title III, can make sure their websites are accessible to people with disabilities, as required by the ADA. The guidance discusses a range of topics, including the importance of web accessibility, barriers that inaccessible websites can create for people with disabilities. When the ADA requires web content to be accessible, and tips on making web content accessible. To find out more about the ADA, visit ada.gov or call the Justice Department's toll-free ADA information line at 800-514-0301 or 800-514-0383. The Louisville Downtown Lions Club held its March 22 meeting at the American Printing House for the Blind Museum. Michael Hudson, director of the museum, 
gave a wonderful presentation on stories surrounding museum acquisitions, such as a rare Louis Braille book from 1829, a massive collection of Helen Keller's writings and memorabilia, and the recently acquired collection from the Kentucky School for the Blind Alumni Archives. Listen to Mike's exciting presentation on page 2. The 1950 census is being released to the public on Friday, April 1, by the U.S. National Archives. It will be searchable on many genealogical websites, such as Ancestry.com, MyHeritage.com, and FamilySearch. Discover why this is so exciting and significant on page 3. As always, we welcome your comments and suggestions for future shows. Give us a call at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Page 2. And welcome to our March 22nd Lions Club meeting. Mr. Mike Hudson of the American Printing House for the Blind. He will give us a guided tour of everything. We're actually going to go upstairs, Mike? Yeah. So if um, you guys, uh, we have a couple of you. want to go upstairs to the museum. I, let, me, let me just by a show of hands, how many people have never been to the printing house? So, so few. Today, we're about 280,000 square feet, and we are the largest maker of educational products for people who are blind in the world. We made about 13 million pages of Braille last year, about 8 million pages of large type. We recorded talking books, audio books, and we make all kinds of educational things. So essentially kind of a factory research center and of late, a real information clearinghouse. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I marvel that it was March 18th of uh, 2020 that my boss, Gary Mudd, who's now retired, uh, came to me and said, yep, hit the bricks, everybody. And uh, so, uh, you know, we were, we, were out of, we were out of work really until June, and then only the manufacturing staff came back. And the museum staff didn't come back until, we didn't reopen the museum until July, right after the July 4th holiday of last summer of 2021. So um, it's been it's been a slog, hasn't it? Um, we will remember these last two years uh, vividly, um, and hopefully we can say that in that way, as opposed to saying we will remember those three years, <laughs> we will remember those four years, or we remember those eight years, or whatever. Anyways, I, I want to thank uh, the Lions Club, Carla Adam, for inviting me to talk to you tonight. Um, we're really glad to host your meeting. We have not hosted a meeting <clears throat> since March 18th of 20. So we, uh, none of our annual meetings have been live. We've all been virtual. I think we're all sick of Zoom, right? I know I am. Um, but there are big things doing at APH. We've continued with some planning activities, and I want to share those with you uh, this, this evening. There's a lot of new things going on in the museum. So um, it would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't start any discussion, any talk to the, to the, to the Downtown Lions Club by telling you a story that uh, I started in... Uh, September, August of 2005, and my boss, again, Gary Mudd, called me a couple days before I even started and said, the day you start, we're going to go down and we're going to have lunch with the Downtown Lions Club. So it's my very first day on the job. I mean, with you guys. And he said, oh, and um, uh, I don't know what you're going to talk about, but they want you to talk. <laughs> so I had to come talk to you guys, and, like, I knew nothing about blindness. Nothing. 
right? So basically, I just decided to be honest, and my talk that day was about how ignorant I was, you know, <laughs> and that's fair enough, right? Um, but so in 1925, uh, Helen Keller was invited to attend the Lions Club International Convention at Cedar Point, Ohio. Her TypeScript speech is still in the AFB Helen Keller archive, which arrived here in late January of 2020. We have been the proud uh, uh, repository for that collection ever since, and there are some select items from that collection in these two cases over on the side. So characterizing herself as Lady Opportunity, knocking at the door, Keller made this plea. Quote, Will you not help me hasten the day when there shall be no preventable blindness, no little deaf-blind child untaught, no blind man or woman unaided? I appeal to you, lions, you who have your sight, your hearing, you who are strong and brave and kind, will you not constitute yourselves knights of the blind in my crusade against darkness? Helen wrapped them around her little finger, and she's had them there ever since. The lines took her up on that charge and have interested themselves in that cause to this day. So your club has always taken a great interest in the work here at APH in general, and here in the museum in particular. Um, you helped us acquire our copy of the Presede in 2016. It's right over here in a case. I hope you'll get a chance to go look at it. The Presede, translated to the method, was Louis Braille's classic 1829 book where he introduced the idea of writing with dots. And that dot code that you could read and write it and its elegant simplicity changed everything for learning and literacy for people that were blind. There are only six copies of that book left anywhere in the world, and without your all's generous help, we wouldn't have been able to bring it here to Louisville. And so it, it's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It would have been impossible without you. Um, you helped us to inventory and process and store the Kentucky School for the Blind Alumni Association archive, which we've been working on since that summer of 2020. And um, I just want to share a few highlights of some stuff we have found in that amazing collection. Um, so inside of it was an 1875 copy of the poem Snowbound by John Grinliff Whittier. It's in an alternative code to uh, Braille called New York Point that competed with Braille for a while. And it was only, that was, 1875 was the first year that we did any New York Point books. And so now this is the earliest New York Point book that we have in the collection. And it was tucked away in the alumni archive. Um, in, in 1900, this guy named John D. Gregory, Kenny, one of your one of your predecessors, you know, the first great coach at the Kentucky School for the Blind shows up, and between 1905 and like 1920 or so, the collection is just full of all these amazing silver trophies that KSB won, often in competition against seeing schools, because that's one of the things that Gregory kind of brought in was. The kids at the School for the Blind competing against sighted schools. Um, there is an 1893 certificate from the Columbian World's Fair in Chicago um, where the superintendent took uh, some of the schoolwork that the kids have been working on and these amazing tactile maps, uh, one of which we have in, on display uh, in, the, in the museum, that he had carved by hand and he won a gold medal for it. Um, we have these woven goods. 
1913, the superintendent at KSB, Susan Merwin, did a deal with one of her board members named R.C. Ballard Thurston. Uh, Thurston's brother Samuel was on the board at Berea College. Berea had been doing a lot of experimenting with reintroducing these kind of Appalachian crafts into into the mountains, and they had this lady, Anna Ernberg, which if you know anything about crafts, she's like huge, and she had invented this, this, this loom, and Thurston and Susan Merwin brought one of those looms from Berea to KSB, and in this collection is a blanket that was woven by a little girl named Bessie Noble from Wolf County, Kentucky, on that loom. That's pretty cool stuff. Um, 1911, KSB founded Boy Scouts of America Troop 10. It was, that we know of, the first uh, 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 troop of uh, kids at one of the schools for the world. Very early, one of the earliest Boy Scout troops in, 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 in Kentucky. And the, uh, the, uh, the collection is just full of all kinds of their papers, their records, and other accomplishments. Um, uh, on, uh, what was it, Carla? New Year's Day of 2021, some very bad men and women broke into the charitable foundation over there and spent all night stealing their silverware and their fax machines and, and their tape and their toilet paper and all kinds of other stuff. You can't understand why they were stealing them. But one of the things that they did, just to let you know that there's, there, that no, that like there's, it's an ill wind indeed that blows no one any good, is they went around and they broke open all the closets. Okay? So one of the closets in the history room was painted shut and we thought it, there was nothing in there. But they busted open to see what was in there. They didn't steal anything in there, but inside was an accordion. Okay, well, uh, working with Adam and, and Carla, it turns out that the accordion was, was, was owned by a guy named Louis Knipp, right? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so Knipp was a kid who went to KSB. He was a musical kind of a uh, genius. Went to U of L, got a master's degree in music, came back and taught music at, uh, at, uh, at U of L, I mean at, at KSB. Maybe the end of his story doesn't have a very happy ending. Um, because he had some substance abuse problems, but one of the cool things that he did, and you guys don't even know this yet, because I just found out it, was that in 1968, this guy named uh, Zoot Sims, who was a jazz star, came to Louisville to play, and this guy would pick up local people to play with him whenever he came, and so there is a, a, a CD that you can buy on Amazon, which we bought, called The Zoot Sims Quartet uh, Comes to Louisville, and who did he pick up to play piano? But Louis Knipp. Mm. Oh, man. Right? Yeah. Isn't that cool? Uh, let's see. Uh, also in the collection, we found a press board writing guide uh, and a script writing board. These were both things that were uh, designed to help kids that were blind learn how to both sign their name and to just write longhand. And they were both, well, one was from 1875, one was from 1880, and they're the two earliest examples of educational aids made here at the American Printing House of the Blind. We didn't have them, and they were, had been saved over there by, by, uh, by the folks at KSB. Um, we have their yearbooks, we have their newspapers, we have their uh, administrative papers, their school notes, their school calendars, all that stuff is in the collection. And so uh, we continue to prowl through that. There are thousands of photographs, and that's going to take years. But um, 
but it's amazing. And, and I've gotten to see visual records of Kitty Jones <laughs> as a little kid with those glasses, <laughs> and then a, a, a powerful wrestler with those glasses, and then a young coach with those glasses, and then an old coach with those glasses. <laughs> and it's one thing about Kenny is that you immediately, when you see the picture, you go, oh, well, there's Kenny Jones. And there's been a, there's a few pretty good pictures of Carla and Adam in there, too. Yeah. Um, so it's been an amazing joy to work on that 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 collection and um, uh, uh, we've had a lot of fun with it so I think that the underlying reason that APH opened our museum in 1994 was this vague feeling that our history was being lost um, that things were being thrown away that ought not to be thrown away. that young teachers and young specialists were growing up not knowing their roots and that the general public was generally ignorant about what it meant to be blind and how people who were blind lived their lives and put their pants on one leg at a time in the morning and brush their teeth all by themselves and read books and do what they want and do it when they want. And that people that are blind themselves don't always know their own history. They don't know about the struggles of their grandparents and their parents for the basic rights to get an education and hold down a job. But I also think that history can be inspiring and informational in our everyday lives. Now, of course, I think that way, right? It's my job. <laughs> but think about your own first day on the job. Armed maybe with a piece of paper from a fancy school and nothing else. And so can you tell me that having a role model like Ann Sullivan, Helen Keller's teacher, knowing that she persevered through the challenges and succeeded beyond her wildest imaginings, can you tell me that that doesn't give you some confidence? Now, can you imagine how she felt stepping off that train in the wilds of, Mus of uh, Tuscumbia, Alabama, with a high school education so far away from everything she knew, her poor eyes were aching. She was only weeks removed from her most recent of a series of eye surgeries. And she's straining to understand the accents, those southern accents, and make herself and her Boston Irish understood and trying to hide the fact from these ex-Confederates that her immigrant father was so destitute that he left her and her brother at the almshouse. And when she arrived at the Perkins School for the Blind, her dress, her hose, her shoes had been provided to her by the fallen women from that same almshouse and were the only thing that she owned in the whole world. And if she failed to work a miracle, she was going to lose her job and end up where? And we sit here with our college degrees and our unemployment insurance and our social security and our city buses and our Uber and our internet packed with information, with information right at our fingertips and our cell phone. All that, and the story of Annie Sullivan doesn't give you confidence that you can make it. And how fragile memory is. Kenny and I were talking about that at dinner. I'm 58. I find that I remember less and less, and there just isn't any room there up in the end. <laughs> so if some, someone doesn't <clears throat> tuck it in a file and label it, and make sure it doesn't go out on the porch for the trash man when Aunt Viv passes. Well, maybe 
Nobody's left to remember. Nobody's left to write it down. And then Aunt Viv is just gone. So, what are we going to do with all these incredible stories? And that's what I want to talk just briefly about. We're going to do something new. We're going to build new exhibits, new storage, new research rooms, new education spaces. We're going in new directions. We're going to build a building out on front of the building you came in. We're going to tear the entire facade off of that 1955 building that you entered in. And uh, when you enter into the lobby of the the American Printing House for the Blind in two years, you're going to enter into the story of the history. Um, You're going to enter into the museum. The museum is going to be the portal for your entire experience at the American Printing House for the Blind. Helen Keller said, life is either an adventure or nothing at all. So that's the way we are going to live our life here at APH. We're we're, we're, we're trying new things. We're, We're taking risks. We're taking chances. And I know that the Downtown Lions Club is going to be with us when we go there. So thank you. So, there's my spiel. And, um, uh, yes, Adam. Yeah. Uh, Fred, I I think you had a question for Mike about Pinus Davis and some of his materials. Well, you, you know who Finest Davis yeah. and Mike. And we've talked about this before. Yeah, we've we never have. gotten to get together with it before. Right. Yeah. And, and the stuff is still in the basement gathering mold. And so Finest was our uh, superintendent from 1947 or so to 1976. And he was president of Lions Club International at some point. And you have... He was a member of our club. And, yeah. 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 So in this... Addition, would there be room to do anything for finest? Yes. Yeah. Now, now I'm not the one who's, you know, we're, we hired a, 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 a Louisville design firm called Solid Light. They're an internationally known uh, design and installation crew. And they're working with us to figure out how to tell the story. And we're going to tell the story a little bit differently than we're telling it right now. Right now, we're pretty much the history of education and rehabilitation for people that are blind. But in this new installation, there's going to be a significant portion of it that's going to look at how people who are blind live their lives, historically and today. And, and what we're trying to do is change people's attitudes about what's possible for people with disabilities. Uh, you know, in general, in the United States, there's a very negative, there's very little optimism. I guess it would be the most positive way to say it about what it's lived like to live your life with, 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 with a disability. And so we, we're going to introduce lots of characters, surprising characters. Um, but there is going to be a big section on APH and innovation, and Final Stage played a role in that. So I know he's going to be in there. Now, is there something in that collection that would, would help to inform that? I don't know. But, you know, we talked about it, and I just need to come. We need to get together. I need to come over there and take a look at everything. So that's, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, I think we... I think we've talked at least twice over the last, I've been here 16 years. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I know the first time we talked about this was probably 15 years ago. So, I mean, I need to get off my schneid and and, and come over and and, and take a look and see what you got. Does anybody else have any other questions? Otherwise, I also want to know, if I go back and find a recording of that 2005 speech, how much it would be worth? 
<laughs> and I guarantee you, Adam was sitting up there up front with his uh, with his recorder. Yeah. I would hate to think, Adam. That'd probably be pretty embarrassing. Oh, there going, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's clearly wrong. Adam was probably sitting there laughing. But did y'all? I know. I know. Adam called you. Did y'all know a guy named Jim Shaw? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Remember Jim? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wonderful guy. So, like, maybe two or three months after that, I got an invitation from um, the Fraser to come down at some, you know, lunch and learn session that, you know, they do down there at the Fraser Museum. So, by that time, I'd been here three months. I was able to cobble a little bit better spiel together. And I walked down, I mean, I you know, took my car down there. And I walk into the, into, the, into, the, into the lobby, and there's Jim Shaw waiting for me. Now, I had never met Jim. And, uh, but he had a cane on, so I figured, you know, he was my people, right? So I walked over there, I'm like, you know, my cuts. He's like, oh, you know, I'm Jim Shaw, and I came down here to, I came down here to hear you talk. And that meant a lot to me. So it was great, uh, you know, it's been, it's been a great experience here uh, working at Pretty House. And so our museum basically right now is going to close in about probably November of this year. And then we'll probably not reopen until we reopen the new facility. And we're working on the name. We have a, you know, when I started, the name of this place was the Marie and Eugene Callahan Museum of the American Printing House of the Blind. You know, but if you're trying to write a marketing slogan for that, you know, that's that's a hard one. You know, so I'm hoping we come up with something nice and short and pithy that says exactly what we are, and um, and you don't have to, you know, you, you know. Uh, print a book to, to write your title but um, our, our, our galleries now you right where you're at right now is this is the oldest part of the building this is the 1883 building and so you can see back behind you there's a cast iron column there in the wall uh, here is a gas fixture for the old gas lamps that the place uh, there's a ramp there a strange ramp that leads up into that room that was our first recording studio 1936. There were presses out here on the floor, so they put in two or three inches of cork in the base of that recording studio, trying to insulate it sonically from all the machinery that was out here. And then you see the big fire doors. So those rods support these big, huge doors, and there's a, a, a cable, a metal cable on one end, and uh, a little metal strip that connects the cable to a weight. And at about 200 degrees Fahrenheit, that metal strip melts, the weight falls off, and the door comes slamming door. So it's an automatic fire door from about 1923. Um, and, and hopefully if the door closes, then that gives your staff, you know, 15 or 20 more minutes to get out of the building before the fire spreads. Um, but, um, you know, the bones of this building, you know, um, are, are all still here. In this gallery, this is what we call the 1883 gallery, and the uh, exhibits kind of tell the story of the history of it uh, uh, here at APH, so kind of decade by decade what was going on at the printing house. And we also have a couple of cases out uh, that have, well, behind me here, this is Helen's desk. This is Helen Keller's desk. Her house burned down in Arcan Ridge, Connecticut in 1947 while she was in uh, Great Britain kind of doing a survey of what had happened to the blindness institutions in Europe during World War II? How, you know, how had they come through? So while she's there, her house burns down. So they have to rebuild the house and buy her totally new furniture. And so this this was the desk they bought. Um, and the only real concession to her blindness is the raised rim around the edge. Um, 
But you know what's funny about it? You would think that, you would think that a, just a big old office desk would not have that much power. But I have literally sat here and watched people weep at this desk. Because everything she wrote between 1947 and 1968 when she died was written at this desk. And <clears throat> there's a picture back behind it. You can see the typewriter, her braille writer, um, these various statues that you can see. One of these little sculpted heads is this statue of La Pachinara here. So this is a, a Dolores uh, Gomez. She's an infamous Spanish communist who fought uh, in the Spanish-American War. I mean, the Spanish Civil War, not Spanish-American War. Totally. Um, but it, it, that, the, that, that Helen had La Pachinara, that's her nickname, on her desk tells you a little bit something about Helen. Okay? Helen is a free thinker. Um, she spends most of her life as an advocate, social justice warrior, fighting for women's rights and civil rights and disability rights, and she had a lot of divergent ideas from the people of her day. And that is in contrast to what a lot of people think about when they think about Helen Keller. Right? You've seen the play, you think of the water pump moment, you know, where the little kid has her hand run through the water, and you freeze her there in your mind. You freeze her as that little girl. But here's the frightening thing, gentlemen, as you know, about women. Little girls grow up to be women, right? And when they do, they're, you know, they're not quite so, you know, easy to, you know, tell what to do. And, 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 uh, and Helen was really good at speaking truth to power. Right. So the and the collection, this Helen Keller archive is just full of that sort of thing. You know, her views about birth control. Okay, uh, very controversial in the 1920s. She wrote an article in the Women's what is it? Uh, the Ladies' Home Journal. Okay, there could not be more stodgy middle class America mm -hmm. than the Ladies' Home Journal. And she writes an article there in the in the in the 1920s about putting these eye drops into the eyes of newborns to keep them from catching the gonorrhea of their parents, of their mother. Okay, well, I mean, most of the women who read the Ladies Home Journal didn't even want to say the word gonorrhea, you know. And here was Helen Keller saying, we gotta, we gotta, you know, we can, it's easy. A couple of drops and we save the sight of these kids. You know, and the, the fact that we have to face the fact that their mother has a venereal disease is just that's we're just going to have to do that. And and you know we could go on and on and on about Helen and her and her 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 her, her writings and thinking. But one of the things that we're going to do in the new in the new center is going to be a big section on Helen Keller because we have this collection. But what we want to do is we want to explore the real Helen Keller, the full gamut. Not and and by the way, some of her ideas you're going to disagree with. Okay. I'm just going to let you know that. I disagree with some of them, you know. But that's people, right? And people are 360 degrees. Um, but she's definitely a, a woman that needs to be remembered, and one of the most interesting women of the, of the 20th century without, without fail. So, um, and then this gallery back behind me here, this is the Callahan Gallery. Uh, and and it, it's kind of our original installation. And, and there where we, we see the very first books, they were in raised letters, not in Braille. We meet Louis Braille. We look at a lot of different writing devices, braille writers, uh, uh, handwriting guides, how do you teach math, how do you teach science, how do you teach geography, um, and uh, the history of the first schools, uh, the history of early talking books. Uh, one of my favorite things back there is the 1959 World Book Encyclopedia in Braille. 
which if it falls on you will kill you. Um, and and here's the thing about it: it's, it was the largest braille project ever, ever done, and and probably to ever be done. And all of that world bug encyclopedia, ladies and gentlemen, I'm holding my phone out here. All of that encyclopedia is now right here on your phone. Anytime you want to know. If you want to know what the definition of arthropod is, you pull your phone out and you ask it. You don't need an encyclopedia anymore. You know, so I mean, the, the, the you know, these big projects that were, were really important in their day and now they're like dust. Right? So um, um, that's just the, the, the thing about technological innovation. And the number of volumes that encyclopedia took up? It was like 145, am I right? Well, I, I think the original World Book came in 26 print volumes, which yeah. would take up about, you know, maybe about three feet of space on your, yeah. on your bookshelf. Well, uh, each one of those print volumes required seven volumes of Braille, each which was about three or four inches thick. Mm -hmm. uh, if you walk back there, you see what I'm talking about. But, so it's, it's kind of, that's, that's, you know, that's our, that's our story. That's what a museum is about. And... Um, I'll be glad to answer any questions other than that, and you're free to you know, wander around at your own pace, and, uh, and uh, we're glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you. are also free to go ahead and leave whenever you want. <laughs> Today I've been working on large type books um, from the uh, late 40s and early 50s oh. Oh. that were the covers were silk screened here at APH. So instead oh. of printing a cover the way we do now, yeah. it was a linen tape cover, and then literally they would create these silk screens and, and a squeegee and ink and squeegee a two color uh, silk screen uh, cover on. Oh. So yeah, they're real works of art. They really are. Oh. Is that from the alumni stuff? It is, yeah. Really? Yeah. Now, see, I didn't, cool. I didn't yeah. know that was there. Kenny and I, you know, we all. Yes. See, there's a lot of stuff that's just yeah. like buried, you know. So what I, what I want to do is when I get to the point where I'm starting to work on the photographs, I'll run you off a list of everything I've, that yeah. we've got so far. Because the photographs are going to take forever. Yeah. Really, oh, yeah. they are. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, having the yearbooks, though, is going to help for the, from 1974 to 96, I think, is the range of yearbooks. Now, yeah, maybe 97. Page three, this article is taken from the Ancestry.com website and is entitled Coming in 2022, the 1950 U.S. Census. The 1950 U.S. Census gives us a snapshot of the country at one of the most interesting points in American history, just after the Second World War and before a decade of advances in science, civil rights, and entertainment. It was taken on April 1, 1950, roughly a year before the first color television program was broadcast. Three years later, scientists would discover the structure of DNA. And, by mid-decade, on December 1, 1955, Rosa Parks would refuse to vacate her seat on an Alabama bus. If your family members were among the over 151 million people living in the U.S. on Census Day in April of 1950, you could learn rich details about their lives through the 1950 census records once they become available on Ancestry.com 
and in other sites in 2022. The 1950 census will provide more Americans than ever the opportunity to learn about ancestors whose stories are still in living memory. Upon the census's release, 30 million people age 9 and younger will appear for the first time in a U.S. federal census. When will the 1950 census be released? Federal censuses take place every decade, as required by the Constitution. But the information collected is not immediately made public. Instead, access to census records is restricted to the individual whose name is on the record or their legal heir for 72 years. This is due to the 72-year rule, which became law in 1978. It requires that the National Archives wait 72 years after Census Day to release census records to the general public. Many people think that the 72-year rule was put in place because 72 years was the average lifespan at the time, but experts believe this is a myth. Following the 72-year rule, the 1930 census records were released on April 1, 2002, and the 1940 census records were released on April 2 of 2012. Similarly, federal census records from 1950 will be released to the public by the National Archives in April of 2022, which is 72 years after the census was taken, on April 1, 1950. What did the 1950 census reveal about the U.S. population? The 1950 census determined the resident population of the United States to be 151,325,798, a 14.5% increase from the previous census in 1940. When comparing the 1950 census to the 1940 census, the three most populous American cities remained New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia, in that order. Los Angeles surpassed Detroit as the fourth most populated U.S. city, with Detroit dropping to the fifth largest city by population. Americans living in Alaska and Hawaii in 1950 were not residents of a U.S. state as Alaska and Hawaii would not become the 49th and 50th states, respectively, until 1959. However, they were included in the census, as the 1950 census included the territories of Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, American Samoa, Guam, the Canal Zone, the Virgin Islands of the United States, and some of the smaller island territories. The 1950 census was the first federal census that took place after the end of World War II, in which 16 million Americans fought. Several years prior, Congress, seeking to help soldiers 
readjust to civilian life after the war, had passed the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, better known as the GI Bill. It gave servicemen and servicewomen access to multiple forms of economic assistance, including guarantees for loans to purchase a home, business, or farm, job counseling, and a weekly unemployment benefit of $20 for up to one year for veterans looking for work, tuition-free education up to $500 along with a cost-of-living stipend. As a result of the GI Bill, about half, 49%, of college admissions in 1947 were veterans. The combination of greater access to higher education, job counseling, and the availability of government-guaranteed loans set the stage for the increased economic prosperity of the 1950s and the accompanying baby boom. To provide some context on the economic boom, the gross national product more than doubled from $200 billion to more than $500 billion between 1945 and 1960. And throughout the 1950s, about 4 million babies were born each year. The 1950 census caught a snapshot of the country at the beginning of this baby boom, as it had started a few years prior in 1946. What the 1950 U.S. Census can reveal about your ancestors. The 1950 census provides an intriguing snapshot of the country as a whole. But it can also provide you with rich details about the lives of your family members who were living in the U.S. at the time and were among the 151 million people enumerated or counted in the census. In addition to biographical details like their age in 1950, their address, gender, race, and if they were married, The 1950 census also can give you a detailed picture of what they did for a living. The 1950 census also included supplemental questions. On each census page, the fourth person and then every subsequent fifth person was asked supplemental questions for a total of six people per page. This meant that For households with five or more members, presumably everyone would get the additional questions. These supplemental questions included deeper life details such as the birthplaces of both parents and the highest grade of school attended. And based on the responses of family members who answered the supplemental questions for those 14 and older, you could get a really detailed picture of your family's finances back in 1950, including how much money that person earned in 1949 and how much money they and their members of the household each received from 
interest, dividends, veterans' allowances, pensions, rents, and other income. Tips for searching the 1950 U.S. Census records on Ancestry. Search for your family and other censuses and vital records. A lot can happen in a decade, especially during one in which there was a world war. You can get a sense of how your family's life changed over the previous decade by comparing the information you find in the 1940 census and the 1950 census. For instance, you might find out if they were single in 1940 and married by 1950. Further investigation could uncover that they'd married their wartime sweetheart. Or, since families are listed together, along with the ages of everyone in the household, you might discover some of your ancestors had young children, signaling that they were part of the great baby boom that was the hallmark of their generation. Remember, you can glean details that tell deeper stories, like if your ancestors were beneficiaries, of the GI Bill. College students included in the 1950 census were enumerated where they were living while attending school rather than where their family was living. So if your ancestor was from Maine but pursuing higher education in Massachusetts in 1950, they would appear in the Massachusetts census they would be listed as a student, and it's possible they were one of the millions of Americans who benefited from the GI Bill to further their education. The 1950 census could lead you to learn more about veterans in your family. Every fifth person in the 1950 census was asked additional questions. For those age 14 and older, one of those supplemental questions included if the person served, quote, in the U.S. Armed Forces during World War I or World War II or any other service, including the present, end of quote. Information you uncover in the 1950 census, such as age, can help you then find additional military records and honor your ancestors who served. Study the census taker's handwriting if it's hard to read. Enumerators from the 1950 census wrote down the responses by hand. You may find an instance where the handwriting is hard to read. Find other words that you can read perfectly to help you make an educated guess. A, quote, Sawyer, S-A-W-Y-E-R, listed under occupation, could say lawyer, but with an L that resembles an S. Don't forget to look for photos of family members you find in the 1950 census. Eastman Kodak had introduced the box brownie camera five decades before the 1950 census at a low-cost, simple-to-use camera. It's Initial price was $1, equivalent to roughly $28 today. 
By 1950, Kodak's first internally synchronized flash camera, the 620 Flash Brownie, had been around for 10 years. These technological advances meant your family appeared in the 1950 census and had greater access to cameras than ever before. And you could find some of their photos on ancestry family trees. You could also find your ancestors yearbook photos among the collection of more than 450,000 yearbooks on ancestry using biographical details you learn in the 1950 census. Talk to family members about family stories. The 1950 census is Recent enough that you may either have family members who were part of that census or family members who have first-hand memories of ancestors who were included in that census. They may have photos or other memorabilia you didn't realize the family had, or they may have additional details about family, such as where they were born, that could help you continue your family history journey. Get ready to explore your family history in the 1950 census. What family stories might you be able to discover in the 1950 census? The 1950 census will be available on Ancestry References, 1950 census instructions to enumerators, United States Census Bureau, Accessed October 26, 2021. The 1950 census will be available on Ancestry in 2022. Stay tuned. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Soundprints. Have a great week, everybody.